0: Now, please take a Bible in the hand. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can turn to page 941. Uh, Our passage this evening is Romans chapter 3, we'll get verses 21 through 26. Tonight, we are continuing our Sunday evening sermon series on the order of salvation. Tonight, we come to justification And if you paid attention to the hymns we sang, the doctrine has been laid out for us. So just hold on to your bulletin and go look it up again if you need a good summary of what we believe the Bible teaches about justification. Can't do much better than, and can it be, and arise, my soul, arise. Tonight we're going to one of the key passages, one of the launching points for the Apostle Paul when he... Is going to explain the teaching of justification. But before we read God's word, just a little reminder on what are we doing uh, studying the order of salvation? Um, It may be a new concept to you, but this has been something that Christians have thought about for centuries. That nearly all Christian traditions recognize that there is a revealed logical order to the application of redemption in the Scriptures. Meaning that Jesus accomplished salvation in his life, death, and resurrection, and then it is applied to sinners by the Spirit of God, but it is revealed to be applied in a certain order. So I spend the time on this. This isn't um, an academic um, kind of pursuit for us. No, this is valuable and important to the Christian because as we think on these things, this is what it does for you and I. It helps us to get a hold of God's generous and gracious character. It is the design of our triune God that every consequence and effect of sin is remedied by the work of Jesus. And then that work is then applied to the believer. And so what we are studying here in the order is how God is meeting our need. He's showing us the way that He, in His divine wisdom, has prepared such a great salvation and then rebuilds, remakes, restores the image of God in the sinners that he saves. His provision meets every need, repairing and renewing the image of God in us, his people. And so this isn't just a a something to learn. No, it is to point our eyes and to fill our hearts with delight as we consider the riches of God's grace. His abundance towards us and redemption is a, a superabundance. And everywhere that the fall has touched us, He has planned and then applies. What we need. So that's what we're doing here in the order of salvation. We've considered effectual calling, regeneration, then faith and repentance. Tonight, we come to justification. Before I read this very important passage on justification, let us ask for the Lord's help and prayer. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, would you please, by your Spirit working, give us eyes to see the glory of the Savior and your gracious, generous kindness revealed in the gospel tonight. Lord, for some here, this is good reminders. May it be food for their soul. For some here, this will help put some things in order in their mind. May it be food for their soul. And if there be anyone among us tonight who does not know the Savior, would you draw them to yourself yourself? as your Son is exalted. Do a mighty work among us by your Spirit as your word is read and proclaimed. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through verse 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. That ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Uh, The plan tonight is to do this. We're going to get into this passage here in a moment, but first I want us to just briefly consider the New Testament definition for justification. What is the term in the New Testament that would be good to clarify and then to move forward as then the second thing we'll do is that we'll then look at this foundational passage on justification and having considered what the word originally meant in the Greek and then seeing... How the Apostle Paul begins to play work this out here in his letter, in this section of Romans, from there, after we consider the foundational passage, we'll then, from that passage, derive our theological definition. After doing that, the fourth thing we'll do tonight is that I want us to place justification in the order of salvation. And then the last thing we'll consider um, the difference in, It makes for the Christian life. Difference it makes for living the Christian life. Now, none of this will be comprehensive. Hopefully, it will be cohesive and coherent and competent, but none of it will be comprehensive this evening. There's so much to plumb when it comes into the depths of justification. But we begin with the New Testament definition, and we want to make sure that our terms are correct there's a story about the, uh, he's now gone on to be with the Lord, but there was a theologian and professor, John Gerstner, was lecturing on justification, and a local newspaper reporter was observing the lectures, and he wrote a whole story about how the professor, John Gerstner, at Pittsburgh Seminary, was lecturing on just a vacation. So we want to be careful, and we want to make sure that we get the terms right. The word justification, um, it is derived from a verb in the New Testament, to justify. It's dikio. It means to declare righteous. That's what the word means. That is the term, to declare righteous. Now, it's a specific New Testament term, but the concept is found throughout the Scriptures, God is one who is presented from the old to the new as a perfect, holy judge declaring what is wicked and what is righteous. And that's very important to understand as part of the biblical background to the term. It is a legal term. It means to be acquitted of all charges, but more than that. Not just acquitted, but then also declared to have a certain status. So declared to be acquitted of all charges, but also proven righteous. That's what it means to justify. To declare righteous means that there are no charges that can stand, so the negative cannot be proven, but also it is a declaration that there is positive. So this is different than the way that our court system works isn't it that someone is brought up and they must be there must be reasonable charges to bring them before a trial and the trial is to prove that they are not guilty but someone could be not guilty of what they've been accused of and not be a righteous person and they could be a, a a horrible person they can be a criminal in so many ways, but of the crime accused, it cannot be proven that they are guilty, and so they are not convicted. Well, when God declares someone to be righteous, it is both saying that there is no accusation that can stand against them, but also that they are without sin. Now, we need to unpack that here in a moment. To be clear, it is not to make someone upright. It is an evaluation of their status in the courtroom. They are treated as one without sin. Now, the good news is that in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us that we don't have such righteousness, but the gospel declares to us that God has a saving righteousness that comes to undeserving sinners so that they might be treated before God as if they have never sinned. So how does that take place? Well, that brings us to our foundational passage here, Romans 321 through 26. Now, this was an important passage for Martin Luther. This is what he said of this passage. He said, it is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and the whole Bible. He said, this is the point of the entire book of Romans. It is the center of the Scripture." That the narrative of redemptive history leads to what is articulated here and everything else from the cross comes from this place. Another has said that this might be the most important paragraph ever written any time and in any language. Now, not everything that we know about justification is laid out in these verses here. The, the fullness of the explanation begins here in verse 21 for the Apostle Paul, um, and it really carries through the rest of the letter, but primarily, we want to get your your heart and mind uh, just feeding on this truth. You spend your time beginning here in verse 21 and take it through Romans chapter 5, Read on it, meditate it, study it over and over. But from our passage tonight, I want us to see a couple things. In verse 21, I want us to see the justification and the law. Then in verses 22 through 23, I uh, want us to see who needs justification and how to get it. Verses 24 through 25, the grounds of justification. And then in verse 26, the justification and of God, we could say. Verse 21, look back there with me. Hopefully, you still have your Bible open, justification and the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There we see there is a, an element of discontinuity and continuity, between what Paul is preaching as the gospel and what has come before in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, what he's clarified in this point into the letter is that all are incapable of the righteousness necessary to be declared righteous before the throne of God. Those who did not have the law of God had a form of his moral law Written on their hearts, Romans chapter 2, their conscience bearing witness to them, and that they violated that law. The Jews, who were at a better position, having the revelation of God's law and covenants, could not keep it. The law in Leviticus says, Do this for life, do these things, and you shall live. And none were capable of keeping it and living. So the apostle says, in order to be justified, it will not come by your keeping of the law, but the justification that is available that the gospel announces has been testified to in the law. We see it in the very passage itself. When he says that the law and the prophets testify to this, bear witness to justification, to the righteousness of God that saves and covers sinners. How do they bear witness to it? Well, in the passage ourselves, when he's explaining the work of Christ, he uses a couple Old Testament words. Redemption. And then propitiation. Those are two ways that the, the in the Old Covenant, the believers were pointed towards what God would accomplish in the Son and what he would offer through the Son's life, death, and resurrection to all who would believe on him. That word redemption there, it is in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, where a helpless people are rescued by the initiative of their God. That their salvation comes from outside of them and takes them from the bondage and from the tyrant Pharaoh. That Old Testament word propitiation, it means the, the appeasement of wrath. It, it's the word hilasterion in the Greek, and it's the same word then if you were to translate it back into the Hebrew for the mercy seat that was there on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies within the temple. It is drawing reference to the Day of Atonement where the high priest would bring the blood. And pour it on the mercy seat to be a covering for the sins of the people. There's many ways that the Old Testament testified to and pointed believers to justification by faith alone. In fact, we, we believe that salvation has always been in Christ alone alone by grace alone through faith alone both in the old and in the new in the old anticipating what God would accomplish in the son and now in the new we do have an advantage to where that we can see all that was anticipated has been accomplished one looking forward the other looking back the prophets testified to this isaiah 61, verse 10. There it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels there the prophet Isaiah says to all these Jews who their understanding of of the the keeping of the law and this ritual he's he's connecting some things what is God trying to communicate to you folks but well, one day he's going to provide a righteousness for you and what will it be like well the image is that it's a covering. It, it's going to be a garment. That if anyone is to look at you, they're going to see this garment. They're going to see what you're wearing. This is, this is what God is going to do, and this is what he's trying to point you towards. And this is what you need. Now, there's other places where the law and the prophets testify how God will deal with our corruption and the pollution that is internal. But the Old Testament bears witness that there would be something outside of us, something that we come to understand is legal and forensic, something alien to us that would cover us so that God would look upon us as if we had never sinned. Then in verses 22 to 23, The apostle makes it clear who needs justification and how to get it. So look back at verse 22 through 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's saying that this is your status before the throne of God, that every person has been been weighed in the balances, they've been evaluated, and this is the verdict apart from being covered in the righteousness that God provides. The verdict is you have fallen short of the glory of God. You were created as an image bearer to reflect his glory. And that was to be done in obedience and in fellowship with him And each of us had failed. We had fallen in Adam, and then we ourselves had demonstrated our fallenness with our own lives. That we did not give honor to him in the way that we were intended and created to do. And so we are all in need of this righteousness and This justification is made available to all. It is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, some of this translates funny for us in English, doesn't it? I mean, just think about how the the paragraph began. It begins with a but. And the, the English teachers in here, that probably didn't excite you that the paragraph begins with the but. Well, it, it, it does begin there. It doesn't begin that way in the Greek. And here there's a, there's a, a repetition that seems like, Paul, what are, you, what are you saying? It's through faith for all who believe. There's a redundancy to what you're saying, Paul. And so there have been those who have tried to get creative and try to figure out, well, does this mean the faithfulness of Christ or faithfulness like Christ That is not testified anywhere in Scripture. But what we do see in the Apostle Paul that when he uses this sort of redundancy, if you would, it's to drive the point home. That those who receive the saving righteousness, the only way that it could be received is by faith. And that was what we looked at previously in the order of salvation. That there is... No other grounds by which someone could receive this righteousness. Then, in verses 24 through 25, the grounds of the justification are there laid out. And what is it? It is the work of Christ. It is his cross work, his redemption, his sacrifice, his giving of himself, And it is to be received by faith. And then in verse 26 we see the justification of God. What is Paul laying out for us here? He's laying out for us to affirm that when God justifies the sinner, it is not what some have accused the Protestant doctrine of being a legal fiction. The idea that we are not righteous, and for God to say that we are righteous is an unjust judgment. No, they have missed the logic that Paul has put here for us. Paul's saying that God is justified in his actions when he justifies the sinner. And why is that? Because the grounds on which he is declaring this verdict, not my life in record, it's not your life and record, but it's that of his son. That his son paid the price for our demerit, and that his son, through his obedience, merited what was necessary for us to be declared righteous. He can establish the grounds, he is God. God's righteousness in saving the sinner does not compromise God's righteousness as a judge. That he is right to justify sinners because he's doing so on the basis of what his son has done for them. So that brings us to our theological definition. Don't worry, I did not venture to write my own definition of justification Just use what the Shorter Catechism has for. So Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is justification? The answer is justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It is an act of, Of God's free grace. Now, in the order of salvation, we see there are are several things. Some things you could say it's an event, and some things are processes. Here, we have an event, we have an act. God has done something. So, in the next part of the series, when we consider adoption, Adoption is an act, but after that comes sanctification. Sanctification is a work of God's grace. This is an act. This is something that has a reference to a point in real space, time, in history. More on that in a moment, but it's important to recognize that not everything, when considering the application of redemption to us, is a process, and not everything is an act. And something like regeneration, we see in a moment, the sinner is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, and from there, there's the seed of sanctification that then is worked out throughout the rest of their life. Then we see that it's not just an act, but that it is an act of God's free grace. This is what it said in verse 24 of our passage tonight, didn't it, that we are justified by his grace as a gift. There was nothing outside of God constraining God to justify the sinner. God the Father gave the Son because he wanted to. The Son gave himself because he wanted to. And what did they aim to do? Declare sinners pardoned and righteous in Him. need to pay attention to the verbs in this definition. Did you see the verbs? There's pardon, accepts, imputes, receives. Most of the verbs are talking about God's actions and justification. We do not justify ourselves. God pardons. This wraps up forgiveness it is the dealing with our past it is the dealing with our sinful if you would criminal record before the just judge of the universe god pardons and having pardoned he accepts he could declare pardoned but stay out that's not the god who justifies he pardons and accepts and how can he do such a thing well, he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. That word impute means he assigns or the language of exchange in Second Corinthians 5.21 that he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Our sin assigned to Christ, Christ's righteousness assigned to us. It is imputed, or in the words of Isaiah, Christ's righteousness becomes our robe, our garment, our covering. But the judge is just because when he looks at us, he sees that righteousness. And then we see our part, it is to be received by faith alone. Justification, an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That helps us understand what faith does. Remember, it is the instrument but it also helps us understand that faith itself is not the grounds of our justification. There is an error that is taught that God, because of Christ's sacrifice, can forgive our sins. But how does God deal with our need for positive righteousness? Well, there's a misreading of the scriptures that would say that God then substitutes, instead of our perfect obedience to his laws and commands demonstrating righteousness, that instead he substitutes our faith instead of our obedience. It's not what the Apostle Paul lays out. Because in doing so, the gift of justification would not be a free gift of grace. It would be merited by our act of faith and believing. It's not receive and rest. Now, in a moment, just let's take a moment and consider the placement in the order of salvation, because it was God's plan from all eternity to justify elect sinners. Some have made the mistake and say that, therefore, we are justified from all eternity. But it's not the case Because that's not the way the scripture speaks about the application of redemption. You can think of Ephesians chapter two. It lays out very clearly that there was a before Christ and a but God and his grace comes and then we believe and receive by faith. That the Bible teaches that you are not justified from all eternity, that God in his decree knows whom will be justified, but there must be an event, an event in which by faith you receive Christ and therefore you are justified. Faith precedes justification. Ephesians 2, Titus 3, listen. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, what's the danger of believing that you've been justified from eternity? Well, it treats the Christian life and our exercise of faith in a way that is so passive, that it is not consistent with the way that the Scripture teaches. We receive what Christ has done for us, but it is an act of our faith that we believe. No one believes for us. But those who held to the teaching that they were justified from all eternity, basically faith is nothing more than becoming aware of your justification. And the fruit it bore in the Christian's life was antinomianism. This sort of passivity then played out in the entirety of the Christian life. The faith that justifies, we're justified by faith alone, but That faith is never by itself. And so, we believe we are justified. But also, it's important to recognize that the Bible teaches that there is a moment in which the sinner, having been given eyes to see, receives the Savior and believes. And at that moment, they are justified, not waiting a final verdict. We await the final verdict, but the final verdict in eternity confirms what is now a reality. There are those who would say that we believe in Christ, but we are truly justified on the last day. But it's not what the apostle lays out for us. And to state things in that sort of way, to put justification, if you would, at the end of the order of salvation would mean that your faithfulness is required for your justification. So, the work of Christ and the work of God, the justifier, is not enough, but it requires your own faithfulness. So, you can see the tension of where we see in Scripture and why we place it here in the order of salvation that it requires are believing on Jesus, but once we have done so, it is the final verdict spoken into today. We can know for certain what God will tell each of us on that last day if you are trusting in Jesus. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, you can also know for certain what God will tell you on that last day. Nobody will be depart from me just if all have fallen short of the glory of God, any who trust in Christ can know this great justification. It's also important that it falls here in the order of salvation, that we are legally declared righteous, and that is setting the context for our adoption. Adoption follows justification. It is almost you could say, a consequence. Good. That God has declared us righteous, accepted us, What does that acceptance look like? Is that he brings us into his family. There's so much more to say that I want to leave us with. So what is the difference that it makes for living as a disciple of Jesus? Knowing, understanding, grasping, seeing the riches of God's grace and justification and where it falls in the order of salvation what difference does it make for you tomorrow and the next day? Well, Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, lays out the differences. It's about the Christian's freedom. To be certain, it's about your eternity. And It's about your eternal security. And it's about dealing with your past. But the apostle points us in the book of Galatians that it is about the Christian's freedom. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. The strength or weakness of our grasp of justification by faith is integrally related to our freedom and joy in Christ. It's related to our freedom and our joy in Christ. It is good to know that there is no jury in heaven. There's only a judge. Now, we're in trouble because our crimes are against the very judge who is judging us, but he is a righteous judge. And then when we come before him in the righteousness of another, he declares us righteous. Some of you, you do carry baggage from sin and shame and guilt. You don't have to. You're clothed in the righteousness of another. There is no jury looking at you, watching you. Your accuser, he's still trying to accuse you but he's not even allowed into the courtroom. It's just you before the throne of God. If God accepts you in his son, what freedom does it give from our past and from the purview of others? There's a freedom and a release through that we don't need to try to impress one another with our religious achievement and our exercises. There's nothing that I need to do to you to prove my place in God's family. My place is secured by Jesus and his righteousness. Now, it doesn't leave me into a life of license. No, justification actually helps me walk in freedom from my sin, too. There are some who say that Sanctification is just going back and thinking about your justification, and there's a wrong way to think about that, but there is something helpful to consider. Obedience to God, true obedience is rooted in love. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. When we go and dwell, and we think about this passage in Romans chapter 3, and stick our noses in Romans chapter 4 and 5 and we get a hold of what the apostle is teaching in the book of Galatians we see a wonderful savior a lovely savior and in grasping the doctrine of justification you and I our love for the savior who would live and die for us grows. So justification does serve our sanctification. It does help us address the moral pollution and corruption and the renewal of the image of God in our character and our persons because we want to do it out of gratitude and love for a Savior. And love for our Father. There's so much more I can say, but we are at time. Let us pray and close in singing here. Our Heavenly Father, you are so kind to us that you have provided your son that what should be the most terrifying thing in the world, to stand before the judge of the universe who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows the extent of our fallenness and rebellion and sin better than we can even grasp, has offered your very Son to take the wrath of the judge for our sin and to exchange our guilt for his righteousness. This is truly a wonder. Help us to delight in it and to live in confidence, trusting in your provision for our every need. If you're for us, who can be against us? No one. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.